Section 38 of Optics by Sir Isaac Newton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Optics by Sir Isaac Newton. Book 3, Part 1, Queries 30 through 31. Question 30. Are not gross bodies and light convertible into one another, and may not bodies receive much of their activity from the particles of light which enter their composition? For all fixed bodies, being heated, emit light so long as they continue sufficiently hot, and light mutually stops in bodies as often as its rays strike upon their parts, as we showed above. I know no body less apt to shine than water and yet water by frequent distillations changes into fixed earth, as Mr. Boyle has tried, and then this earth being enabled to endure a sufficient heat, shines by heat like other bodies. The changing of bodies into light, and light into bodies, is very conformable to the course of nature, which seems delighted with transmutations. Water, which is a very fluid, tasteless salt, she changes by heat into vapour, which is a sort of air, and by cold into ice, which is a hard, pellucid, brittle, fusible stone, and this stone returns into water by heat, and vapour returns into water by cold. Earth by heat becomes fire, and by cold returns into earth. Dense bodies by fermentation rarefy into several sorts of air, and this air by fermentation, and sometimes without it, returns into dense bodies. Mercury appears sometimes in the form of a fluid metal, sometimes in the form of a hard, brittle metal, sometimes in the form of a corrosive pellucid salt called sublimate, sometimes in the form of a tasteless, pellucid, volatile white earth called mercurius dulcis, or in that of a red opaque volatile earth called cinnabar, or in that of a red or white precipitate, or in that of a fluid salt, and in distillation it turns into vapour, and being agitated in vacuo, it shines like fire. And after all these changes it returns again into its first form of mercury. Eggs grow from insensible magnitudes and change into animals, tadpoles into frogs, and worms into flies. All birds, beasts and fishes, insects, trees, and other vegetables, with their several parts, grow out of water and watery tinctures and salts, and by putrefaction return again into watery substances. And water standing a few days in the open air yields a tincture, which, like that of malt, by standing longer yields a sediment and a spirit, but before putrefaction is fit nourishment for animals and vegetables. And among such various and strange transmutations, why may not nature change bodies into light, and light into bodies? Question 31. Have not the small particles of bodies certain powers, virtues, or forces, by which they act at a distance, not only upon the rays of light for reflecting, refracting, and inflecting them, 
but also upon one another for producing a great part of the phenomena of nature? For it's well known that bodies act one upon another by the attractions of gravity, magnetism, and electricity, and these instances show the tenor and course of nature, and make it not improbable but that there may be more attractive powers than these. For nature is very consonant and conformable to herself. How these attractions may be performed, I do not here consider. What I call attraction may be performed by impulse, or by some other means unknown to me. I use that word here to signify only in general any force by which bodies tend towards one another, whatsoever be the cause. For we must learn from the phenomena of nature what bodies attract one another, and what are the laws and properties of the attraction, before we can inquire the cause by which the attraction is performed. The attractions of gravity, magnetism, and electricity reach to very sensible distances, and so have been observed by vulgar eyes, and there may be others which reach to so small distances as hitherto escape observation, and perhaps electrical attraction may reach to such small distances even without being excited by friction. For when salt of tartar runs per deliquium, is not this done by an attraction between the particles of the salt of tartar and the particles of the water which float in the air in the form of vapours? And why does not common salt, or saltpetre, or vitriol, run per deliquium, but for want of such an attraction? Or why does not salt of tartar draw more water out of the air than in a certain proportion to its quantity, but for wanton of attractive force after it is satiated with water? And whence is it but from this attractive power that water which alone distills with a gentle, lukewarm heat will not distill from salt of tartar without a great heat? And is it not from the like attractive power between the particles of oil of vitriol and the particles of water, that oil of vitriol draws to it a good quantity of water out of the air, and after it is satiated draws no more, and in distillation lets go the water very difficultly? And when water and oil of vitriol poured successively into the same vessel grow very hot in the mixing, does not this heat argue a great motion in the parts of the liquors? And does not this motion argue? that the parts of the two liquors in mixing coalesce with violence, and by consequence rush towards one another with an accelerated motion. And when aqua fortis, or spirit of vitriol poured upon filings of iron, dissolves the filings with a great heat and ebullition, is not this heat and ebullition effected by a violent motion of the parts, and does not that motion argue that the acid parts of the liquor rush towards the parts of the metal with violence, and run forcibly into its pores till they get between its outmost particles, and the main mass of the metal, and surrounding those particles, loosen them from the main mass, and set them at liberty to float off into the water? And when the acid particles, which alone would distill with an easy heat, will not separate from the particles of the metal without a very violent heat, does not this confirm the attraction between them? When spirit of vitriol poured upon common salt or saltpetre makes an ebullition with the salt, 
and unites with it, and in distillation the spirit of the common salt or saltpetre comes over much easier than it would do before, and the acid part of the spirit of vitriol stays behind, does not this argue that the fixed alkali of the salt attracts the acid spirit of the vitriol more strongly than its own spirit, and not being able to hold them both, lets go its own? And when oil of vitriol is drawn off from its weight of nitre, and from both the ingredients a compound spirit of nitre is distilled, and two parts of this spirit are poured on one part of oil of cloves or caraway seeds, or of any ponderous oil of vegetable or animal substances, or oil of turpentine thickened with a little balsam of sulphur, and the liquors grow so very hot in mixing, as presently to send up a burning flame, does not this very great and sudden heat argue that the two liquors mix with violence, and that their parts in mixing run towards one another with an accelerated motion, and clash with the greatest force? And is it not for the same reason that well-rectified spirit of wine, poured on the same compound spirit, flashes, and that the pulvis fulminans, composed of sulphur, nitre, and salt of tartar, goes off with a more sudden and violent explosion than gunpowder, the acid spirits of the sulphur and nitre rushing towards one another, and towards the salt of tartar, with so great a violence, as by the shock, to turn the whole at once into vapour and flame. Where the dissolution is slow, it makes a slow ebullition and a gentle heat, and where it is quicker, it makes a greater ebullition with more heat, and where it is done at once, the ebullition is contracted into a sudden blast or violent explosion, with a heat equal to that of fire and flame. So when a drachm of the above-mentioned compound spirit of nitre was poured upon half a drachm of oil of caraway seeds in vacuo, the mixture immediately made a flash like gunpowder, and burst the exhausted receiver, which was a glass six inches wide and eight inches deep. And even the gross body of sulphur powdered, and with an equal weight of iron filings and a little water made into paste, acts upon the iron, and in five or six hours grows too hot to be touched, and emits a flame. And by these experiments compared with the great quantity of sulphur with which the earth abounds, and the warmth of the interior parts of the earth, and hot springs, and burning mountains, and with damps, mineral coruscations, earthquakes, hot suffocating exhalations, hurricanes, and spouts, we may learn that sulphurous steams abound in the bowels of the earth, and ferment with minerals, and sometimes take fire with a sudden coruscation and explosion, and if pent up in subterraneous caverns, burst the caverns with a great shaking of the earth, as in springing of a mine. And then the vapour, generated by the explosion, expiring through the pores of the earth, feels hot and suffocates, and makes tempests and hurricanes, and sometimes causes the land to slide, or the sea to boil, and carries up the water thereof in drops, which by their weight fall down again in spouts. Also some sulphurous steams, at all times when the earth is dry, ascending into the air, 
ferment there with nitrous acids, and sometimes taking fire, cause lightning and thunder, and fiery meteors. For the air abounds with acid vapours fit to promote fermentations, as appears by the rusting of iron and copper in it, the kindling of fire by blowing, and the beating of the heart by means of respiration. Now the above-mentioned motions are so great and violent, as to show that in fermentations the particles of bodies which almost rest are put into new motions by a very potent principle, which acts upon them only when they approach one another, and causes them to meet and clash with great violence, and grow hot with the motion, and dash one another into pieces, and vanish into air, and vapour, and flame. When salt of tartar, per deliquium, being poured into the solution of any metal, precipitates the metal, and makes it fall down to the bottom of the liquor in the form of mud, does not this argue that the acid particles are attracted more strongly by the salt of tartar than by the metal, and by the stronger attraction go from the metal to the salt of tartar? And so when a solution of iron in aqua fortis dissolves the lapis calaminaris, and lets go the iron, or a solution of copper dissolves iron immersed in it, and lets go the copper, or a solution of silver dissolves copper and lets go the silver, or a solution of mercury in aqua fortis, being poured upon iron, copper, tin, or lead, dissolves the metal and lets go the mercury, does not this argue that the acid particles of the aqua fortis are attracted more strongly by the lapis calaminaris than by iron, and more strongly by iron than by copper? and more strongly by copper than by silver, and more strongly by iron, copper, tin, and lead, than by mercury. And is it not for the same reason that iron requires more aqua fortis to dissolve it than copper, and copper more than the other metals, and that of all metals iron is dissolved most easily, and is most apt to rust, and next after iron, copper? When oil of vitriol is mixed with a little water, or is run per deliquium, and in distillation the water ascends difficultly, and brings over with it some part of the oil of vitriol in the form of spirit of vitriol, and this spirit, being poured upon iron, copper, or salt of tartar, unites with the body and lets go the water, doth not this show that the acid spirit is attracted by the water? and more attracted by the fixed body than by the water, and therefore lets go the water to close with the fixed body? And is it not for the same reason that the water and acid spirits, which are mixed together in vinegar, aqua fortis, and spirit of salt, cohere and rise together in distillation? But if the menstruum be poured on salt of tartar, or on lead, or iron, or any fixed body which it can dissolve, the acid by a stronger attraction adheres to the body, and lets go the water? And is it not also from a mutual attraction that the spirits of soot and sea-salt unite and compose the particles of sal ammoniac, which are less volatile than before, because grosser and freer from water, 
and that the particles of sal ammoniac in sublimation carry up the particles of antimony, which will not sublime alone, and that the particles of mercury, uniting with the acid particles of spirit of salt, compose mercury sublimate, and with the particles of sulphur, compose cinnabar, and that the particles of spirit of wine and spirit of urine well rectified, unite, and letting go the water which dissolve them, compose a consistent body, and that in subliming cinnabar from salt of tartar, or from quicklime, the sulphur by a stronger attraction of the salt or lime lets go the mercury, and stays with the fixed body, and that when mercury sublimate is sublimed from antimony, or from regulus of antimony, the spirit of salt lets go the mercury, and unites with the antimonial metal which attracts it more strongly, and stays with it till the heat be great enough to make them both ascend together, and then carries up the metal with it in the form of a very fusible salt, called butter of antimony, although the spirit of salt alone be almost as volatile as water, and the antimony alone as fixed as lead? When aqua fortis dissolves silver, and not gold, and aqua regia dissolves gold and not silver, may it not be said that aqua fortis is subtle enough to penetrate gold as well as silver, but wants the attractive force to give it entrance, and that aqua regia is subtle enough to penetrate silver as well as gold, but wants the attractive force to give it entrance? For aqua regia is nothing else than aqua fortis mixed with some spirit of salt, or with sal ammoniac, and even common salt dissolved in aqua fortis enables the menstruum to dissolve gold, though the salt be a gross body. When, therefore, spirit of salt precipitates silver out of aqua fortis, is it not done by attracting and mixing with the aqua fortis, and not attracting, or perhaps repelling silver? And when water precipitates antimony out of the sublimate of antimony and sal ammoniac, or out of butter of antimony, is it not done by its dissolving, mixing with, and weakening the sal ammoniac or spirit of salt, and it's not attracting, or perhaps repelling the antimony? And is it not for want of an attractive virtue between the parts of water and oil, of quicksilver and antimony, of lead and iron, that these substances do not mix, and by a weak attraction, that quicksilver and copper mix difficultly, and from a strong one, that quicksilver and tin, antimony and iron, water and salts, mix readily? And in general, is it not from the same principle that heat congregates homogeneal bodies, and separates heterogeneal ones? When arsenic with soap gives a regulus, and with mercury sublimate, a volatile fusible salt, like butter of antimony, doth not this show that arsenic, which is a substance totally volatile, is compounded of fixed and volatile parts, strongly cohering by a mutual attraction, so that the volatile will not ascend without carrying up the fixed? And so, when an equal weight of spirit of wine and oil of vitriol are digested together, and in distillation yield two fragrant and volatile spirits which will not mix with one another, 
and a fixed black earth remains behind. Doth not this show that oil of vitriol is composed of volatile and fixed parts, strongly united by attraction, so as to ascend together in form of a volatile, acid, fluid salt, until the spirit of wine attracts and separates the volatile parts from the fixed? And therefore, since oil of sulphur per campanum is of the same nature with oil of vitriol, may it not be inferred that sulphur is also a mixture of volatile and fixed parts so strongly cohering by attraction as to ascend together in sublimation. By dissolving flowers of sulphur in oil of turpentine, and distilling the solution, it is found that sulphur is composed of an inflammable thick oil, or fat bitumen, an acid salt, a very fixed earth, and a little metal. The three first were found not much unequal to one another, the fourth in so small a quantity as scarce to be worth considering. The acid salt dissolved in water is the same with oil of sulphur per campanum, and abounding much in the bowels of the earth, and particularly in marcasites, unites itself to the other ingredients of the marcasite, which are bitumen, iron, copper, and earth, and with them compounds alum, vitriol, and sulphur. With the earth alone it compounds alum, with the metal alone, or metal and earth together, it compounds vitriol, and with the bitumen and earth it compounds sulphur. Whence it comes to pass that marcasites abound with those three minerals. And is it not from the mutual attraction of the ingredients that they stick together for compounding these minerals? And that the bitumen carries up the other ingredients of the sulphur, which without it would not sublime? And the same question may be put concerning all, or almost all, the gross bodies in nature. For all the parts of animals and vegetables are composed of substances volatile and fixed, fluid and solid, as appears by their analysis. And so are salts and minerals, so far as chemists have been hitherto able to examine their composition. When mercury sublimate is resublimed with fresh mercury, and becomes mercurius dulcis, which is a white tasteless earth scarce dissolvable in water, and mercurius dulcis resublimed with spirit of salt returns into mercury sublimate, and when metals corroded with a little acid turn into rust, which is an earth tasteless and indissolvable in water, and this earth imbibed with more acid becomes a metallic salt, and when some stones, as spar of lead, dissolved in proper menstruums become salts, do not these things show that salts are dry earth and watery acid, united by attraction, and that the earth will not become a salt without so much acid as makes it dissolvable in water? Do not the sharp and pungent tastes of acids arise from the strong attraction whereby the acid particles rush upon and agitate the particles of the tongue? And when metals are dissolved in acid menstruums, and the acids in conjunction with the metal act after a different manner, so that the compound has a different taste much milder than before, and sometimes a sweet one, is it not because the acids adhere to the metallic particles, and thereby lose much of their activity? And if the acid, 
be in too small a proportion to make the compound dissolvable in water, will it not by adhering strongly to the metal become unactive and lose its taste, and the compound be a tasteless earth? For such things as are not dissolvable by the moisture of the tongue act not upon the taste. End of section 38 Optics by Sir Isaac Newton